Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of Bedroom Beethoven's and I'm your host Marcello. Uh, I, if you're following the blueprint of how a podcast should go, you should your first episode should kind of be like a, a, a blueprint trailer to let people know, but I kind of just wanted to dig right into this. This is the first episode and my guest is a good friend of mine actually. We've known each other for, I'd say a year and a half, two years, Dennis Preston Jr., He's an American record producer and audio engineer. He's composed in the motion graphics and recording industry for several years. You might know him as DJ's never-ending story. Basically, Bedroom Beethoven's is a podcast where I talk with music producers because I'm fascinated by them. Because most individuals are either left brains or they're right brains. Left brain means you're more analytical more of a a numbers guy and a right brain means you're a creative type and I feel like to be an effective music producer you need both so Dennis became a memory of the bakery productions which was a team that contributed to the number one single pop lock and drop it which I couldn't escape 10 years ago that was by the rapper Huey he later signed a joint venture deal as an in-house producer for the Grammy award-winning music production team the track stars DJ Neverending Story is also a crypto enthusiast. He has his own podcast called Crypto Until Infinity on the Bitcoin Podcast Network, which is their first music broadcast. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about finance as well, because he has an affinity to teach people about decentralized platforms to give more power to the individual. Because a music ecosystem without intermediaries and authorities allows artists to get paid immediately for their streams, their merchandise sales. I don't know. It, it just... You share a financially beneficial relationship with your fans, network directly with other music industry participants, and simplify digital rights management. He's pretty smart, too. So we're going to get into it. Uh, His childhood, uh, his musical tastes. Does he crate dig? I'm a vinyl nut. I want to know all of this. So the thing that makes this podcast unique is I'm not in the music industry. I'm just a fan. So you're not going to get a music producer interviewing another music producer and then get lost in the weeds with jargon or inside jokes or technical prowesses that you might not understand. Uh, I want to interview these people at a human level. And I I think I'm going to get some pretty pretty popular people. In the, I mean, that's the idea. That's the idea. I want to get, you know, Alchemist, DJ Premier. I... I I have a long list. It's a wish list, but I'm getting ahead of myself. This is episode one. Thank you so much. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're listening to this at the time of recording or, hey, here's a message from the future. I have 80 episodes and you just found out about me and you're you're just catching up and going through the catalog. Either way, this is it. This is the beginning. So without further ado, my name is Marcello. This is Bedroom Beethoven's episode one with DJ's never ending story. This is uh, a a lot of people that start podcasts. They uh, they can call in favors and they have big guests in here. And I can't do that yet because I don't even have a website up. I got nothing. So it really takes like a selfless 
just a humble person to to give their time for an opportunity like this. Like I, you know me, like I, I'm 240 episodes in on another podcast. This ain't going right. anywhere, but um, I appreciate your time and, and you joining me here. Man, I really appreciate you just inviting me, man. Like uh, I really don't get to talk about. Uh, music that much or really honestly just <laughs> interestingly enough uh I'm, i mean you know people hit me up through dms on like instagram or whatever you know they tell me they like my music but not many people ask me questions about just me in general or really anything i do people just kind of dm just to tell me hey i like this and that but people don't really talk to me that much i guess i guess maybe my fault too my presence online isn't really out there, out there like that for people to kind of like get a sense of me as a person to even want to ask me questions. But I mean, regardless, man, I mean, I appreciate you just even inviting me to talk right now. Yeah. You're, you're a little disgruntled on social media. Like, like I need, <laughs> I need to take a break. Man, I'm tired of the memes. Just, you know, <laughs> I've been, I've been noticing that. I think, I think, I think with age, man, I think uh, they say when you're younger, you're more liberal liberal and when you're older you're more conservative not politically just like how you are as a person like i'm i think i'm becoming surly man you know how like you might have that that old man in your in your family maybe a grandpa or something and they're like always mean mugging and talking like this you know i think like i'm slowly becoming that man the older i get <laughs> we're still millennials though well, i think we're, we're we're still in that category hey man <laughs> like so some of my friends have kids that are like about to be in middle school man like in yeah. a few more years they could be teen moms you know we, we're gonna be grandpas man <laughs> yeah yeah that, yeah that's crazy man it puts things in perspective i got a, i got a little four-year-old that runs around the house that kind of keeps me young and oh, I, I can't even fathom having like teenage kids I, i'm not there yet <laughs> but yeah we're, we're gonna get into it man I, like i want to hear everything from you know, basically is like, here's my perspective is like music producers. I wanted this to be unique because I'm not a music producer, but right. you usually lump people into left brains and right brain people, left brain, meaning like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm really studious. I'm really analytical. I'm good with numbers organization. And if I'm a right brain, like I'm really creative with the arts and I feel like to be a really effective music producer, you gotta be both. And I don't think, yeah, people that are like that get enough credit. So, like, I really wanted to go down this journey um, of your ten thousand hours. You know, now that now that you have your own podcast, Crypto to Infinity, and I know more of what you play is like hip hop and R and B. But I have to assume that like these genres are kind of what you you grew up on, right? Like, where did this all kind of start for you? Man, you know what? Honestly, the music that I'm playing on the Crypto Until Infinity podcast right now is kind of where I'm at. Just right now in my musical journey, honestly, um, well, I mean, my backstory is my upbringing. You know, I, I wasn't really um, in touch with pop culture that well because I didn't have like cable television. I didn't have Internet growing up. I, I didn't even get Internet until I was 18. Um, and that wasn't until I went to college. So, um, I mean, aside from, like, you know, the little AOL disc or whatever, but you can't really do much with that, you know, back then in the 90s and early 2000s. But anyway. Um, you know, so the only music that I was really in tune with was what I heard on the radio or when I was with my older cousins, what they would listen to on the radio or, you know, they'll pop in a CD in our car or something. So I was really only into like hip hop and R&B, you know. And it wasn't until I got to college where I kind of discovered like all these different genres. You know, I guess the first thing, 
you know, uh, um, you, I probably, I think the first thing, the first type of music I probably got into other than like hip hop and R&B was just like pop rock. Then from that point on, then you kind of get into the indie stuff because, you know, a lot of indie artists kind of, they kind of like um, cater to what's, the, a, what's an example of that? What's pop rock? Uh, I'm, man, back then, uh, I'm thinking like mid-2000s, what was going on? Like, uh, I don't know, like Michelle Branch, you know, you know, just like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, takes me back. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're talking about the mid-2000s, man, but uh, 06 uh, specifically. But, um, but then, you know, I kind of got into um, like the later 2000s, I kind of got into these electronica subgenres uh like uh chill wave and you know just some weird stuff so basically like, basically like the artists washed out um calm truths um then i kind of went on into like uh flying lotus um you know doing this alternative hip hop type stuff and that what kind of led me to put out my very first song that I, that i released under the name DJ's never in the story uh, which was Floating Euphoria. And obviously listening to that song is highly influenced by Flying Lotus. Uh, for anybody that's familiar with this music, you can just tell right off the bat as soon as it comes in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the music that I play now on my podcast is just the song I'm in right now. You, you listen to a lot of alternative R&B, which I'm not an artist myself. Obviously, I'm a producer, but... Even the beats that I put out are kind of like in that same type of feel, you know. And and you do all this with a with a sober mind. Do you do you smoke weed at all? I don't, man. But you know what? It's a funny story, man. Like, you know, I tried weed when I was a uh, a teenager, and I really didn't try it again until uh, two years ago. And um, and it was through edibles, actually. Um, two years ago, I was in Vegas, and um. <laughs> fun time that's that's one story but the story like okay early last year in 2018 i was in vegas again and i had edibles and i purposely like take too much to where i'm just like tweaking and out of my mind kind of like almost in a seizure like state on the bed and crap but <laughs> um so i purposely just go overboard with it and the funny thing is when i was in vegas so i was walking the strip it was one morning i was walking the strip because i was there uh, on a weekday and this older guy comes up to me he's like it's just one of those days huh so I'm just like what like what type of look <laughs> do I have on my face to where somebody would just come up to me and just say that type of stuff right so you know I was in a weird vibe I had met up with a chick out there and it wasn't going too well so I just went back to my hotel man and <laughs> I'm still high from like the night before having all these edibles really and I just go back to my hotel and just start meditating. And while I'm meditating, I just put on some music. <laughs> and and I just start crying, man. And it was like, and I'm not a, an emotional person for real. I probably cry like once every few years or something. Like, I'm just mm-hmm. not that emotional. But I was listening to the music, and it just brought out a lot of emotions. Anyway, days later, you know, I come back home to St. Louis Again, like I, I got some edibles left, you know. I try them out, listening to music again, not my music, just other people's music. And I just get like emotional, not really crying this time, but just like I could really feel the music. This was like the next day. 
Yeah, this was like the next day. Then it, it lasted for damn near a whole month, really. I, <laughs> like, I'm not high anymore, but for whatever reason, like the, the weed, it had that trick or something in me. And it did, it did dissipate after that month. But during that whole month of me coming back, I, I just felt music a different way. I felt lyrics a different way. And it just made me think about how I grew up. Um, sorry about that noise. <laughs> I just think about how I grew up, um, like, say, like going to church or something. You know, you sit in the church pews and you watch other people in the congregation just get so overwhelmed with emotions. You know, black churches, you know, they shout, they dance, all that type of stuff. And so I'm listening to the preacher or something. It doesn't really affect me. Like, I'm just trying to learn. You know, I'm not really caught up in the music like that. Um Listening to speeches by people really doesn't affect me emotional. It doesn't hit me on a visceral level. But when I try weed, man, I'm not going to lie. Like, it opened up, like, my mind, man. And I can't explain it. Like, because I never felt this way before, like, ever. But Yeah. I mean, I, I ask because, like, I, I when I think of Flying Lotus, I think he's one of those artists like Pink Floyd, like, if you oh, listen yeah. to it sober, it's one experience. And then if you listen to it on some kind of mind-altering drug or, oh, yeah. or whatnot, legal or illegal, it doesn't matter. Especially, it's like especially it, especially uh DMT or something, man. I could just I could just imagine, man. <laughs> but I mean, having two emotional responses to music that strong, it it's almost like the equivalent of like all right, I'm Kanye West. I'm going to go out into the the mountains of Colorado so I can probably get the same experience that you just had. I mean, people with a lot of money are probably going to go through great lengths right. to get. I, I, I've I listened to countless hours of music. I've never had an emotional response. Like, like I can vibe out and nod my head, but there was something in the music that kind of struck a chord with you. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, maybe a music producer or someone in the industry can only relate to or, or maybe can only have that response. Man, I wish I could have, like, the money of Kanye West, man. I think he recorded, um, what was that? My, I keep forgetting how you pronounce the name of it. It's usually name. regarded like his, his best work. Yeah, I think, know? I think he went, is that the one where he went to Hawaii for? He brought, he like recorded the whole thing in Hawaii for like months on end or something like that. Yeah, um, he had like 26 minute videos of like fashion shows and like, yeah, I, I can't understand his process, but you know, the, I would say, like, him falling off it has just been something that's been in, in recent times. But his antics has always, like, lent to his genius right. and his relevance. And for, for me, Kanye is, like, really interesting because when, I, when I'm starting this podcast, I'm looking at, like, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm familiar with Mike Will Made It's story where, like, oh, you know, I was 15 years old. I just went into a pawn shop and I was messing around with, like, a little beat maker and I was getting looks from people in the store. And I realized I could make beats. So I went home and made a few beats. Next thing you know, Rick Ross calls me up. Now I'm in the studio with Wale and boom, I got a Grammy. And I'm just, and I'm seeing so many of these stories. Metro Boomin is like so damn young. Yeah. Grammys, you know, DJ Mustard and all these people. And I'm just like, is it easy? Or am I only seeing the side of success? Am I not seeing people that are making five beats a day? And their SoundCloud gets zero hits. I make that point because I'm looking at like old heads like DJ House Shoes and and Pooh Bear uh-huh. and Kanye West. And it seems that they grew up a different time than these young kids. That And mm-hmm. uh, it seems like they're making music for the times. And, you know, maybe if trap music isn't popular anymore, maybe they won't be. You know, if I'm going to say Metro Boomin's overrated and he doesn't really do anything but add a bass line or he drops the bass and adds a lot of treble. 
but it's the new generation that loves it. The, the funny thing is, actually, um, Metro Boomer, he's from St. Louis, actually. Um, I mean, but anyway, going to what you were saying, yeah, I mean, music is a hustle, you know. Um, some people will look at it as a way to advance the art. Some will look at it as a way to advance their, their pocketbook, you know, um, and to advance your, your money. I mean, you got to be with the times. You're giving the microwave generation what they want when they want it. And those type of guys, um, I mean, what can I say? My attitude toward them is, you know, I mean, business is business. I mean, what can I expect? There's there's never going to be any type of pristine market for anything. You know, there's always going to be people in it just for the money and to give the people what they want, just like a pastor, you know, um, a church reference, uh, again, like, uh, you know, say like a lot of people in this congregation, um, politically, they might side one way. So the pastor may not say certain things to, to piss them off. And, you know, he's trying to keep those ties coming in, you know, Mm, that's a good analogy. Yeah. People, you you know, there's never going to be, uh, a full out, you know, just fully honest, all about the art or all about the, uh, the advancement or the innovation of whatever medium. So I don't know. My, my thing is I try to work outside those guys. I don't really consider myself as somebody that's really about the money. Cause if that was the case, I wouldn't be uh, independent. Like I am now I would have kept my, uh, well, I, I still have my relationships with people that are in the industry, but I'm, I'm not with a label. Uh, I really don't believe in labels. For, I mean, labels are just banks. What's popping right now? Oh, it's popping to talk about drugs. Okay, you got to make a whole bunch of uh, songs that you know that's that's going to get people popping mollies and stuff. You gotta, you you know you you know. So, will they last? I don't know. I one thing I do notice is we don't really throw the term super producer out there anymore. And yeah, I, yeah. I, think, I always think of a super producer like someone like, uh, you, you know, a low hanging fruit. But like, hey, I'm Pharrell Williams. I can make a beat for Jay Z, and I can also make a beat for Britney Spears. Right. Would that make you a super producer? I think in today's realm, yeah, because a lot of these guys they can't really produce outside of what you said, just dropping some simple uh, 808s and some hi hats over a sample. <laughs> I mean, not to bash them because I know. I'm not. I'm actually not that good at sampling. It's an art in itself. But for some people, they really don't show their versatility when it comes to producing. And uh, I think a lot of the popular guys. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they're really putting themselves in a box, or like I said, maybe a label is. So we're not really seeing a lot of versatility from them. And maybe that's the reason why we don't hear the term super producer anymore. Because I mean, I I would like to see how Metro Boomin would work with, say, a, a Demi Lovato or, you know, Selena Gomez or something like that. But, I, I mean, doing it without trying to be overly hip-hop, that's another thing, too. Like, when you, when you think a super producer, you know, like, say they're a hip-hop producer, they're known for being hip-hop, but they can also just go full-out pop without having it, quote-unquote, urban, you know. I don't really see that. So, um, I don't, and I don't know if a lot of these guys are capable of that, but I mean, that'd be interesting to have that type of producer come back into the spotlight, you know? 
Yeah, what I find interesting is I, I don't know if, if a music producer has 100 beats on a hard drive or if Demi Lovato goes to Metro Boomin and says, hey, I need a new beat for my record, and then they tailor make beats to that person's oh, sound. Oh, yeah, that's another thing, too. A lot of these beats are pre-made, man. Like, mm-hmm. it might have a skeleton done. Maybe the whole beat might not be done. You can see a lot of it on YouTube. You could, like, um, what's the, uh, I think, Genius, they're one of the platforms on YouTube that kind of interviews producers sometimes, and they sometimes take you behind the scenes, how the producer made the beat. And they say, you know, I already had the beat done or I had so I had most of the beat done. Then I shipped it uh, or emailed it to uh, the artists or whatever. Then I finished it after they laid their verse, you know. So a lot of people, uh, I think a lot of producers now, they're, they're not really making the beats on the spot. Um, and that's another thing, too. I mean, labels, they're, they're not wasting any time. We're trying to crank out hits. We don't have time for you to just sit in the studio and vibe. We, you know, we need to get this done as quick as possible. You know, we're trying to make songs in 15 minutes or less you know so you got to come prepared with the beats you got to have like a hard, like you said a hard drive yeah it's it's interesting because um this past weekend i think future's album was number one and he tied elton john for the number ones and wow. future and he did that in like three years because he, he released like five albums in three years right right and back then in elton john's time or when quincy jones was behind the boards you're you're creating your 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 magnum opus your your the the upper echelon i'm going to spend 8 to 10 years doing this and then go on a grand world tour with 110 dates everything now is just you know very plastic and manufactured mm-hmm. um and then you know we're kind of ignoring the billboard 100s now we're just going by streaming so going diamond or going platinum or gold isn't the same as it was back then i can understand uh music producers our age being a little jaded I guess, at, at how fast the space moves. Well, you, you brought up a point talking about Quincy Jones or something and, you know, preparing a record and then going on a grand world tour. So the way most of the money that artists are making now are coming from tours. So they don't have time to just, you know, spend a year or two working on one album, you know, then go on tour. They're trying to constantly be on tour and to constantly be on tour, you got to, I mean, you just can't put the same, you can't just perform the same records over and over again. You got to have new content. So that kind of forces them to keep cranking out new content, which is just absolutely nuts. You know, Uh, that's why, that's why I don't think a lot of rappers, especially they're, they're not getting as much flack as they probably would have got in the nineties and early two thousands about having ghostwriters. Like, I mean, it's impossible to just keep up to keep coming with hit after hit after hit and not have mm-hmm. somebody helping you, you know, like uh, how they're getting on how, or how they did get on Drake. I mean, yeah, he got a little backlash for it, but just think about all the hits that Drake has. I, I can't say, yeah. I can't say he's writing all that. I mean, you, you're writing the hits, you know, you're going on tour, you manage the other artists of OVO, or you, I mean, not managing them, but at least having maybe a say in their career. You're doing all this and that, and you're coming out with all these hits at the same time. You got to have some help. You got to be having some type of help. You know, somebody wrote a, oh, yeah. a top line. Maybe somebody wrote, uh, you know, a few lines or something. But, yeah. Take an example of Drake. If you go listen to Comeback Season and go listen to Scorpion, it's like watching Fast and the Furious 1 and then watching Fast and the Furious 8. It's <laughs> not, not even the same thing. We'll be back with more Bedroom Beethovens. Stick around. 
Hey guys, I'm sure you're no stranger to podcasts or YouTube videos. At the end, everyone always talks about subscribing to my channel or annoyingly instructing you to do something. Well, my podcast is no different. The cool thing is, I'm in the red. That's right, it cost me money to launch this show. And if you noticed, I have no sponsors. That's bad for me, it was good for you. So since you don't have to sit through an underwear ad, and if you like what you hear, consider leaving me an iTunes review so this podcast can blow up and I can quit my 9 to 5. Give a middle finger to corporate America. I don't have to sit in my car in traffic. And I can do this full time. Or not. Either way, I gotta eat, man. Alright, let's get back to it. And like I said... Was it a two-parent household and... Like, did they play music in, in, in the house? Or, like, how, how was that, like, growing up in a place without the internet? No, and my mother, she state? raised me, man. I mean, my dad, uh, he was kind of around. But, uh, I mean, he wasn't in the house. But, you know, my mom, a lot of my family, they're they're very, like, conservative. Like I said, not, not conservative politically, just their lifestyle. You know, they're kind of, you know, really into uh, um, gospel music and stuff like that. So I, I heard a lot of gospel music growing up, but... Uh, yeah, like I said, my cousins, my cousins would play like hip hop in their cars, you know, when we're out and about, you know, they would play it on there. Um, <laughs> you know, we had, I, I would borrow like, uh, what were the Walkmans and stuff, you know, a bass boost. Yeah. <laughs> 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 right. but, I, mean, I remember all that. But yeah, I mean, in school, like just talking to my peers in, in, in middle school and high school, man. You know, like, what are you guys listening to? Or, you know, back then we would burn CDs. I'll borrow a CD or something, you know, see what people are into. Yeah, that's 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 how I really... And also another thing, too, St. Louis, I guess, in our location, we're very, or at least we were very influenced by Southern hip-hop. Yeah, I was about to say, like, so uh, if you're around my age, I'm going to peg you at about 15 Maybe maybe freshman sophomore year in high school when Nelly came out, and that that must have been pretty good because then I was like, oh, I can identify with someone who who came from this area was, who's making it. Who's, he was the biggest rapper at the time, so. right? Nelly, Nelly, he I think his first big single, Country Grammar, came out in ninety nine or nine or two thousand, like somewhere right there. I, yeah, that that puts me around. Yeah, yeah, I remember I was just entering high school and like every house party I went to. Was that down, down baby coming down in a Range Rover, and I couldn't get out of my head. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I was actually just starting middle school, so. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Nelly, yeah, he was. It was big to have somebody come out of St. Louis, not really on that Southern hip hop, hip hop type of sound, and he also coming with that sing songy style, which wasn't really popular in hip hop like that too much. But uh, yeah, Nelly and the whole St. Lunatics crew, and that actually around that time they had a lot of labels looking at St. Louis. So St. Louis was a different place, and you know we had other artists that popped out that didn't really last too long. People like um, Jibs, uh, Jaquan, he had his couple hits. Uh, Chingy, Chingy was probably outside of Nelly. He, oh, I forgot about yeah, Chingy. Chingy probably, I forgot about that. He was guy. probably like the second most successful coming out of St. Louis. Really. We grew up on Nelly Heavy, man. Like, yeah, he he really brought some more pride to St. Louis when it came to music. You did some some production work with the NBA. You know, why the diversity in the resume? Why not have this nasty catalog of beats, shop it around, uh, crate dig for samples so you can get better at it? I mean, you're the, you're the type of producer who puts out, a, like, these complete bodies of work, and I'm always fascinated by producers and the different routes they take. 
Got you. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, man. So 2006, I was a part of this production crew called The Bakery Productions. And it wasn't me personally, but one of the guys on the team, he was the guy that produced Pop, Lock, and Drop It for the rapper Huey. Uh, That was a big hit back then. Oh, yeah, 2006. Yeah, 2006. It really came out in 2005, and he, he didn't get signed to Jive Records, which, you know, eventually got taken over by RCA. Uh, he didn't. He didn't really. I don't think he got signed until 2006. But the song was out in St. Louis in 2005, and um, so being part of that, you know, we had some uh, people looking at us as a production team, um, and so I went on our team. We went on to sign as in-house producers for the Track Stars. Now the Track Stars were the people that put out Chingy. You know, and they worked, you know, with Ludacris, Britney Spears or whatever. But they were really responsible for everything that Chingy did. So we And that was a, were they a duo uh, producing? Yeah, team? yeah. Uh, Sham and Zoe, yeah. Um, so we would go over to our house. You know, we would be producing for their artists. And we would also produce for other people that they were working with. I, I produced some records. They, they went unreleased, me personally. Uh, I did a record for... Uh, uh, guy, what was her name? I, I want to say her name was Sharifa. Uh, she was signed to DTP on Ludacris's uh label. Uh, I might be saying her name wrong, man. I don't know what. Ooh, she might have. She might have got. Was it? It wasn't Shauna. I remember Shauna was on the DTP, not uh, disturbing the peace label, but she took away everybody's shine. Yeah, it wasn't Shauna. It was another girl. I, I want to say her name was Sharifa. I probably I'm probably saying it wrong. We were dealing with black ground. The label that was that was responsible for Aaliyah, obviously. Aaliyah, yeah, yeah. obviously. I remember yeah, that. She's, I mean, obviously, she was deceased by the time, you know, um, I'm talking about. But um, anyway, Black Ground, they had some artists, and I was producing for them. Even Barry Hankerson's, I don't know if it was his son or nephew, I did a record for him, but it went unreleased or whatever. But uh Anyway, like all this time I'm producing, you know, I'm kind of seeing behind the scenes of how things work, kind of getting turned off by the business side of things, but also just how street it was. Like, it's so crazy how, um, you know, a lot of a lot of these rappers, even today, they're still financed by uh, people in the drug game. You know, all this money isn't coming from labels, you know, um, and sometimes even the mob. I don't know how much the mob is involved now with the industry, but, you know, back in, you know, back in those days, even going into the early 2000s, you know, we still had a lot of mob type of activity going on. But um, just seeing we're talking about mob mentality or are we talking about actual I'm like, talking about, danger? I'm talking about actual like the um, the BMF click, you know, they they were the people that brought out Jeezy, you know, they had the. Mm-hmm. uh, uh the Black Mafia family, you know, they financed Jeezy, I think Gucci Mane, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these cats, you know, that's how they got their start. That's how they was able to pay for studio time and do all these promotional stuff and everything. So now, I mean, you would see stuff in the background. The most, the closest it got to me was, it was, I was fortunate. Uh, my manager and one of the other guys on the team, they had flew to LA and they actually met up with, uh, I don't know. I can't remember if they met up with Suge Knight personally or just people in his crew. And um, <laughs> my guy, he got uh, he got threatened. They, they they were threatening to steal his hard drive of beats and stuff. Um, so it's a lot of uh, flagrant stuff. I mean, you know, it's it's not always just about business. It's about brute. 
you know, and just seeing that stuff um, outside of, you know, what we hear about now when it comes to all these sex scandals and stuff like that. I didn't see none of that personally, but I knew I knew stuff like that had been going on. So, I, you know, me, I'm just getting turned off from that type of stuff because I'm not about that life. You know, I'm not I'm not with it. I don't I'm not the type of person that get it by any means necessary because I do have a code of ethics that I go by that I just I just won't do. So even at that age. Yeah, man. Like I uh, that's just who I am, man. Like I don't I'm not I'm not about trying to uh, justify a wrongdoing if it benefits me or, you know, if it benefits people around me. Like I don't I try to do my best to stay out of hurting people, you know, one way or the other. So that's how I always been, man. So anyway, my point is 2009, I broke off from the crew, the production crew that I was with. Um, One of the contacts that I made while being a part of the crew, he had hit me up. He was still working with uh, Disney and a bunch of other corporations or whatever. So he hit me up. Uh, We tried to do some stuff for Hannah Montana. It didn't really fall through. Um, but it was crazy. I actually kept the contract just, and I framed it too, just to say, I, uh, I had the opportunity to work with Disney and the Hannah Montana show, you know, which was huge back then. Um, Absolutely. No shame yeah, in that. No shame. <laughs> but this is just some other little projects too. But anyway, he, uh, he got me uh, a placement on this, on this, uh, straight to streaming. You know, this was before Netflix. This was like some type of on demand. Um, some type of on-demand movie uh, called Extra Credit. That was my first placement when it came to like film outside of working with uh, some people I met in college just doing some indie film stuff. But um, after that, um, he was the same guy that put me on to the producers of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They were trying to create a cartoon and that cartoon became the cartoon Unsupervised, which only lasted one season on FX, on the FX channel. Then I think Cartoon Network took it over for about a year uh, on their Adult Swim platform. But um, I did all the music for that because they were just looking for a, a, a hip-hop producer. They didn't have to pay crazy amounts of money, which which is kind of in- interesting to me because even the money I got from that was the most I ever gotten from anything <laughs> so it just it just showed me how much more that cable and film pays compared to uh you know just working with uh musicians or whatever so and it also allowed me to step into a, a new type a new type of arena where I didn't feel like I was compromising my morals and stuff because you know like I said man I'm not really with the whole bunch of people rapping or singing about just, you know, just detrimental stuff, you know? So does this come from a place of like karma or like if I, if I stay on the straight and narrow and I do good things, good things will happen in my career. Uh, honestly, bro, I don't, I don't even believe in karma, man. Like I believe, I mean, I, I believe in God, I guess you will say, um, like in terms of, um, you know, just trying to, st- it's, it's not, I'm not really trying, I'm not really trying to stay straight and narrow. I, I can't really say that's, that's my whole thing. It's just the fact that I, I guess I'm, I, I guess I'm an empath a little bit, you know, <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't want to see people, I don't want to be a part of uh, anything that's like detrimental to people, you know what I'm saying? Um, 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to paint you like as a goody two shoes. I'm trying to paint you as someone who's self aware of of that part of their life. And I think a lot of people fall into temptation and the work of the devil when they when they become absent minded. But you seem like you're very on point. You're very sharp with your thinking. It's not. It's not. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, man. Yeah. It's it's not really trying to put myself on a pedestal or anything. It's more so. I I think about. I, I hate to say it because. Um, this is such, it was such a controversial topic and such a controversial case. Um, Bill Cosby, you know, so mm-hmm. think of all the good that he did, you know, trying to put out certain images of black people in the black family with his show. You know, he would go on these speaking tours, even though he would kind of say it in a condescending way to sometimes to, to his black audience, you know, uh, certain. But anyway, it's, it just felt like, you know, he was doing the best he could to try to help people. Or whatever, whatever. But, you know, all this time he was still doing his dirt, apparently. So even though, you know, he had all these years of producing good fruit when it came to TV and and film and stuff. The shit that he did, uh, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s, it came back to bite him in the ass to the point where all the good that he did is basically been wiped out now. Nobody's people. They're basically just trying to erase him from history now, like everything it's almost like every good thing he did is now null and void because he did all this bullshit. Um, so he's destroyed his reputation. Uh, he's losing money, obviously. And, you know, luckily he has a wife that's sticking by him cause he probably would have lost his wife too. So it's just like, I believe that, um, and I, and like, like I said, I, I, I can't really say it's karma, Honestly, it's just logic. I mean, as they say, like what you do in the dark eventually is going to come to the light anyway. Like we're 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 us- we're usually going to find something out eventually. Like so, I just try to do my best to like just just to like do the do the right thing. We we won't see you being a part of the fire festival. Is basically <laughs> what you're saying, man. That's crazy. Man. <laughs> Not at all. It's funny. It's like Ja Rule. He actually took a he took a, a preemptive strike against criticism uh, the other night. He had a he had a concert in New Jersey, and uh, he he took a moment during the show to let his fans know that he he knows that, that everyone's upset with him uh, about the fire festival. And so he he grabbed the mic and he said, "Hey, let me hear you guys say fuck Ja Rule." And the crowd repeated it three times, and then he went on with the show. And I just thought that was such a a bizarre take on how to accept the blame, but, but also shuffle away from the yeah, blame. I, I think he, he's trying to absolve himself from responsibility. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, that, that documentary, I looked at it, man. I looked at the Netflix one. I remember at one point he was like, uh, what do you say? It's not fraud. It's uh, what do you say? I, I know what you're talking about. And it was just like, man, when, when did we get to the point where these, these rappers became such polarizing figures outside of their comfort zone? It's just, yeah, I was, I mean, my whole my whole thing was, I mean, he's just trying to justify, uh, you know, being part of the he still has some responsibility in it. Like he, just knowing Billy's character, like I can pretty I'm pretty sure just behind the scenes, he could see Billy's character like this isn't a guy that's going to be too trustworthy. But it was something in Ja Rule where he was like, even though this guy is very questionable, like I think he could get the job done. So I'm going to work with him anyway. So, but yeah, and that's my thing too. Is like you know, if if I'm Jay Z and I'm going on tour with R. Kelly and I do two albums with him, you're telling me 
you're telling me you didn't see like a 14 year old girl backstage and you're like you know what the album's number one uh this concert's making a lot of money fuck it I'll, i'll turn the other way and it's just like man a lot of these people are just guilty by association and they're just uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the the mindset that you've just laid out in the last twenty minutes because I'm m- my heroes are dying every day. The more I, I'm hearing of like Me Too culture and the internet, and yeah, um, it's just crazy. It's I mean, crazy. they're they're people of. I mean, think about the culture of things. You know, um, you know, think about a time in America where it was you wouldn't even bat an eye. You know, somebody. Being a black person, if somebody said the N word to me that wasn't black, like that was just part of the culture, like to, you know, if to, to whistle at a, a a woman, if I'm black, if I'm a black guy whistling at a white woman, you know, I will get my ass beat or something, you know. That's that was pretty much accepted, you know. And also, when it comes to the music industry, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure a lot of these artists and seeing other artists or even themselves do a lot of stuff where today we would look at it as like, what the, what the fuck, you know? Just the landscape's changing, I guess, for the better, or at least there's more awareness of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, man, you know, um, somebody like Jay-Z, I'd be interested to see maybe 20 years from now, he'll be in his 70s, but just 20 years from now, what what are we doing nowadays or what have, or maybe Jay-Z what has he done in just the recent years that maybe we'll attack him for in 20 years or something you know you don't want to tread too lightly cuz i mean it i, I would feel like the most radical extent of my personality would just to be a hermit because this is probably stuff i'm doing now that i'm not aware of that that's probably not that good not only for myself but maybe to other people or something maybe you know, maybe I'm talking about certain things that are hurting people. Maybe I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing something out there. But so, well, look, we're human. Like I, I can go into your Twitter feed from five years ago and probably find something weird. But I mean, that you can't be faulted for stuff like that. You know, we we grow and evolve as people. Same with your music. Same with your mindset. Like I remember, I was, I was talking to you the other day, and you're like, you know what? I I didn't get to do as much music as I wanted to last year, or. Uh, I'm going into uh, uh, a new direction. I want to feature more pop acts. Um, yeah. You know, you, you just evolve and grow as a person. I don't. I don't try to. I don't try to be a goody two shoes. I don't. I just don't want to do what I clearly know is wrong. Like if I'm ignorant of something and I do it, okay, whatever. I'll apologize for it. But if I know something is wrong, I'm just not going to do it because, you know, I, even outside of music, my whole thing of doing music. Uh, not only do I want to advance the art, I feel like my success in music will lead to other things, too. And I, so I'm slowly building my rapport with the public, you know, my reputation is being put out there. If I do good business practices when it comes to this music thing, you know, when I venture off into other business, uh, you know, my future business partners, they'd be like, OK, this is a stand up individual. Like, this is a guy I want to work with. This is a guy I trust. This is a guy where I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind, you know, throwing a million dollars at him to help start, you know, whatever thing that he's doing now. Like, I know this guy is a stand-up guy. So that's that's the way I look at it, man. Um, you know, um, that's that's the way I look at life, man. Like, there's it, always somebody watching you. 
the way you're approaching this, that this kind of, and you know what, I don't know if people throw away that, throw that word around a lot. Were you homeless in the sense of, uh, uh, couch surfing or like living under a bridge? I mean, None. a lot of people can say, well, I was homeless here in a certain level of comfort. Right. Right. Um, no, no, no. I, well, I was kind of, th- I was kind of thinking like this before that, but, um, I mean, to answer your question, no, I wasn't like living under a bridge. No, I was, I mean, basically couch surfing or finding money to stay in little hotels, um, because mm-hmm. it, it was really four of us out in out out in LA, and we were all just trying to use each other's resources just to try to make it. So, oh, so like LA is like okay, I'm gonna if I'm gonna be a famous music producer, it's either LA, New York, Atlanta. Let's let's try the let's try the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, that was that that was the deal. Yeah, I figured because I, I like over the years I made a lot of contacts over the internet in LA, um, and I talked to them beforehand, some of them beforehand, um before going out there. And, you know, I kind of thought that certain dots would connect, but unfortunately, you know, it didn't really work like that. It also kind of gave me a sense of um, L.A. culture. Well, I'm not going to say L.A. culture. It's more so how they talk about the implants, the people that come from outside of L.A. to L.A. And, you know, just kind of getting this bad, giving L.A. this bad reputation of people are just always trying to step over you. People are so uh, plastic. So, and especially in the, in the entertainment world. So, you know, it kind of gave me a sense of that. So I'm like, uh, maybe L.A. right now isn't for me. I need to come back out here when I actually have a lot of money and I can actually do things on my own terms. But what year was this and how long were you was, out there? This was in 2015 and it was just for three months. This was uh, it, it was pretty short, but it was impactful, you know, when it came to my life, just how I looked at people, you know. Oh no! I, I went to the East Coast for three months, and that was enough. Yeah. So I I relate very heavily. I, I went out into the uh, the the DMV area. Okay. Um, and yeah, three months is all it took. Came back. Yeah, man. I mean, and I'm not saying at first I was kind of uh, against going back out to LA, but I'm like, I just I'm just thinking about how I went out to LA in 2015. I was unprepared. It was kind of on a whim. Because at the time, um, me and my ex, I mean, I was still together with her. You know, we were we weren't going through anything heavy, but it was more so I know she's getting ready. F- well, I think, yeah, we were already engaged. So, you know, I'm preparing for a marriage. You know, I'm trying to really set the foundation of our future lives. So I'm like, man, let me let me go ahead and try to do what I can out in L.A. to to get grounded. And it just didn't work out that way. Um but, um, you know, I, w- I want to go back, man. I was actually thinking about this recently, man. I want to go back, but I do want to go back on my own terms, man. I don't want to go out there looking for work. I want to go out there making the moves or have people come to me instead of me trying to beg for crumbs from somebody else, you know. So. Uh, well, so did your did your fiance go out there with you or she stayed back and you're like. All right, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pack these bags. I'm gonna go do a bunch of shows. I'm gonna be gone for a little bit, but I'm doing this to build the foundation of the life that we're yeah, about to exactly. Have. And she was okay with it. I mean, she trusted me, and I didn't do anything dumb outside of just lose money. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, that, that's how I was, man. I was I was just trying to do my best, man. And um, I mean, she knows she knew my character. You know, she she trusted me. She knew I wasn't gonna be. Uh, messing with other women. She knew I wasn't going to be, you know, living a secret life out there or anything. It was really just about being on a mission. And it just 
failed. But I'm not going to say it failed because honestly, it brought me to other things. I mean, that's what ultimately led me to crypto. Um, just kind of learning finances better. Um, cause I, after I came back from LA, you know, I kind of went into the stock market, um, after I found a new job and, uh, you know, just invest in myself. And, you know, that's how I eventually found out what is this, what is this Bitcoin thing, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's what I love about it is like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is usually people's first foray into investing. I know it's mine. I still almost kind of live paycheck to paycheck, even though I got a pretty good career going. It's just, uh, what are you going to do? Right, right. But I, I like I like your story because it's like, well, I, I use it as an investment vehicle. But at the same time, I, I recognize that musicians lose millions yeah. a year thanks to, I don't know, digital theft, other issues. And you've been pretty outspoken about using, you know, blockchain. If people don't if people are listening to this blockchain and Bitcoin, they go hand in hand. Uh, if I'm just glossing over the terms, but you can use blockchain to help musicians retain ownership of their right. work. I know you've been championing this for a while now. The 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 bear market is in effect. Is this still the the missing layer for an industry? Are you? Uh, I haven't listened to your last two episodes, so I don't know if like this is still a big proponent. Uh, and I don't really see Image and Heap really pushing it. Uh, do you, Do you still think that there needs to be some kind of fair trade act using this technology? Man, blockchain. You know, I mean, the way the way it's set up is, you know, it allows the artist to be to work more, uh, to give them more autonomy. You know, they don't really have to rely on a lawyer if they if they don't want to. I mean, just the way how smart contracts are set up within a lot of these blockchain music platforms. Um, you know, the artists will get paid immediately. You know, their music uh, is within the blockchain, so if it's played you know, outside of the actual blockchain music platform, you know, people, this record is still identified. Uh, the artists, like I said, the artists get paid immediately. Uh, if it's more than one artist, the royalties get divided up uh, appropriately. Um, I did write an article. Uh, if anybody wants to check it out on my website, djsneverinstory.com, um, blockchain platforms, a new paradigm. I kind of go more in, in depth with how it works, but, um, I mean, I'll, I'll, but you're still a believer. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I still use the platforms actually. Um, you know, it's just, you know, the bear market right now in terms of, uh, what you're getting paid is nothing like <laughs> 2017. <laughs> that was, was a good year. Yeah, that was a good year. If you had, man, it's <laughs> like, uh, you know, on Spotify, you get paid, I think just above a penny or just below a penny. I, I always forget because every streaming platform, every major streaming platform, it pays you differently. But anyway, I remember um, being on one blockchain music platform, man. At one point I was getting paid 11 cent per stream, which is crazy. It's nuts. It's <laughs> yeah. crazy, man. But uh, can you just listen to your own music like over and over and over and be like, man, I just made a, I made a buck. And I don't then- yeah. I I guess you could say that. I don't I don't think they track IP addresses. They probably say, okay, this same IP address is the same one that put out this song. And so it's just they're kind of like abusing a platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, actually I think I think they keep track of it because I, I think I, I want to say some people got in trouble for that. I want to say some people got kicked off, especially this one platform I'm thinking about in particular. I think they kick people off for doing stuff like that. I can't be the first person to think of that idea. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, these that's one. That's one way how a lot of these uh, uh, labels, uh, like you know, the big the big labels, that's they got these click farms. They just have um, 
you know, these ways where they can cheat the streaming system. Remember that? Remember that Post Malone? What was it? Rockstar? The mm-hmm. song Rockstar, uh, whatever label he's with, they had put out um, a snippet. Okay. They made, I want to say, a three to four minute audio track that just played a loop of a snippet of Rockstar over and over again. So just playing that one audio track that's three or four minutes long will actually count as how many times on, in terms of streaming, how, the way the streaming counted is, they, they count how many times um, they heard the chorus and they had just had maybe like the chorus on loop for that three to four minutes. So say like you could fit, say, I don't know, say like you could fit the chorus 20 times in that three or four minutes. Instead of it counting as one stream of that audio track, they counted as, you know, the 15, 20 streams because they heard the chorus over and over. So this is ways that the big labels are tricking the system. Uh, I remember back in the day, I, I was talking to this uh, to this artist. I'm not going to mention his name. He was signed to Rockefeller. He said, uh, well, I guess maybe this is common knowledge for people that's been in the industry, but for the outside people, they don't know. They used to switch barcodes on a lot of the CD packaging. Um, so say like, um, I don't know, Mariah Carey, you know, she was real popular. She had a real popular album out. They would put the barcode of, like a rapper or something on Mariah Carey CD. So once people bought the Mariah Carey CD, it actually showed that whatever rapper was getting sales. That is dirty. Yeah, that's dirty. And also, you know, back then before, um, what was it, uh, SoundScan, before a lot of these electronic platforms took over, it was basically just built on trust. The record, the people that own the record shops, they would just have to report paperwork to the labels. And, you know, they can fabricate anything to say like this record sold 30,000 copies this week. I mean, you could, you just wrote it down on a piece of paper. There wasn't a way where you could really track it. So, I mean, you know, there's a ton of ways to get around. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever, whatever having the talent and work ethic, right? (laughs) Man, it's all about public perception, man. When it comes to labels, (laughs) man, they don't care. Like, man, they they I'm finding that out. They do it today. They buy followers for social media uh, a lot of these artists aren't really popping like what you would think they are, you know. So yeah, man, it's it's all a hustle. So the like the so the bear market of 2018 is is there any relation to you not being able to create as much music as you wanted to this this past year? Was there what was going on? Was there some hardships? Were you not able to focus? Were you just not feeling it? Oh, uh, the only thing. The bear market didn't really affect me too much in 2018. It was just how I was dividing my time. Um, so one thing that I really see in myself and I'm really trying to get out of my system is I wear too many hats. I wear too many hats where sometimes I get to the point where I'm not getting anything done because I'm just trying to do too much. And so um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. I think I was probably going a little bit too hard in crypto to the point where it was getting some brand, it was a lot of brand confusion going on. Like, okay, is he, um, is he a trader? Is he a musician? Is he a podcaster? Like, what's, you know, so I'm really, I'm trying to simplify. <laughs> I try to simplify things now, honestly. Uh, but now the bear market didn't affect me too much. Um, it took away a little comfort, I guess, financially. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't have uh, the same amount of money I was working with as you know maybe 2017 
Um, but the bear market, nah, not, not really. When it came to music, yeah. not really. I, I always thought that you were just like a casual soldier in the space. But then, like, I'm seeing you rubbing shoulders with Andreas Antonopoulos, and I'm just like, man, this dude's in it harder <laughs> than I am. This dude, this, this dude is seeking knowledge, and he's traveling, and like. I, I am interested to see this new direction you go with with, with pop artists of what you say is true um, because I, I I associate show music and uh, just good hip hop with you. But for me, like what pop means, it kind of changes depending on what angle you're looking at it from. We, we talked about it earlier with like Michelle Branch and pop rock, and it can be a descriptor of audience size indicating something that's popular, or it can just be a genre tag, yeah, you know, just specifying a sound. So when you when you tell me I want to work with pop artists, my brain starts to encompass like the last three decades because these two definitions have effectively been one and the same. There's there's Katy Perry, you got that confetti music, you got right. uh, JT, uh, Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift. You know the music that strives for that gloss, that that ecstasy spectacle. So, um, and then taking it a step further, and I don't know if people think like I do, but when I think pop, I think white. I think there's an expression of whiteness, <laughs> kind of a one size fits all solution. So for a time. Uh, if we're going to the 1980s, this kind of pop music, I always think about like Michael Jackson and Madonna. It was effectively just monoculture. So when I hear like a hip hop, uh, a country or hard rock, or they're going to go pop, it implies that they're sacrificing something essential about themselves in exchange for something plastic and transitory. Pop was like a softening. It was like right, a compromise. Right. So... Um, when you told me that, I was like, well, I know how smart this guy is. So I'm thinking that you just want to break out of any like preconceived musical connotations that have been set for yourself. Like how like the Neptunes and Just Blaze kind of characterized the early 2000s sound, evolving the old soul samples that kind of define the early part of Kanye West's career. We may very well be in the new era of DJ's never ending story. Does that sound about right? <laughs> well, this is OK. I, I got three things. OK, so. All right. Hit me with it. Uh, I forgot who put it out. Some publication or publications put out that uh, hip hop was the most popular genre of music. So technically, hip hop is pop now. Um, so you got that. Um, another thing too. Um, so when I said, well, first and foremost, I really wanted to put more of my own original music out more so than working with other artists. So that's that's another thing too. I'm really gonna try to focus on even the music I release under DJs never in story the most. But the third thing is, um, when I say pop, man, um, so I've really been getting to, uh, like Afro pop and Afro beats. So man, so thinking about a lot of African styles, what they consider pop, you know, it's totally different from what us Americans consider is the sound of pop. And uh, I really like it, man. I like the energy from a lot of these Afrobeat artists that I'm listening to, like Mr. Easy, Burner Boy. Of course, people like Kid. he's kind of gotten more popular in the U.S. Uh, due to like Drake or something. And Olamide, uh, Malik Berry, these guys, like they're making like pop versions of their African styles. And I love it, man. I love the dances that go with it. I love the vibe I get from the music videos. And I think that's the next big thing to hit America, man. Like, it's already kind of sweeping its way. Like, one of the only producers that I, the only the only big producer or producers that I hear that are kind of taking advantage of it and got in on it real early were uh, Major Lazer, like Diplo. Like, he was, he was kind of on that for, for the past few years now. And, like, 
I think he's going to be where, um, say, like a Dr. Lukey is right now. They're going to be going to to Diplo or just the whole Major Laser crew to get these big Afrobeat and Afropop records. Yeah, I'm glad you defined that because, like, I, when you told me that, I was just thinking, oh, like Hillary Duff. Oh. <laughs> so I think I think you need to explain this to people that people don't know. Like, it's a lot more diverse. It's a lot more uh, cultural than people might perceive the genre to be nowadays because you're right. Like, nowadays – I can go see a Calvin Harris beat and there is three rappers and Justin Bieber on it, but he's like known for like EDM or, you know, so there is genre bending a little bit. Yeah. Genre bending heavily influenced by hip hop. Yeah. They're, they're cashing in on that. They're cashing in on hip hop being the most popular genre. And like I said, it's pop now. Hip hop is pop now. (laughs) You know, it's the pop. You're right. One, one fourth of all music is, is streamed is, is hip hop. So when you said that hip hop is a new pop, like I almost had to take a knee there for a second. You're absolutely yeah, right. And any any type of hip hop isn't quote unquote pop. There has to be like a certain uh change in the way it sounds for it to really grab the attention of people that aren't like uh I hate to say this word, but people that aren't like kind of like in the chitlin circuit, like what they call it. Mm-hmm. Like just, you yeah. know, that's their real like grimy hip hop, you know. So it had to be the pop version of hip hop is not that. So I yeah. So I you know when I say pop yeah I would I would really have to like further explain it that way. But uh, yeah man. Um, but yeah like I said though, uh, just putting my own music out there even more. Just even my little instrumental albums and the way the way I look at my instrumental albums they're more so of just me kind of showcasing my innovative side because like I said I'm a person about trying to advance the trying to advance the art. You know, I'm trying to mess around with different sounds. So when it comes to my own projects or my own releases, I mean it's gonna be hit or miss. I don't expect people to like everything that I put out. But I feel like to be a, a pioneer, which is somebody I strive to be in everything that I do, you really have to create a blueprint for people to work with. And sometimes that blueprint might not be uh, the exact procedure that people need to take to, to create success with, but it at least gave them an idea. And so by trying to stay innovative, trying to push new ideas out there, it's going to help people in the future. And, you know, that's, that's what I'm about, man. Success to you is, I, I guess your job as a musician is not to judge how good or bad your music is. Your job is just to release the music. Yeah, my job is to get people thinking, like, not only just thinking in terms of, uh, from the producer side of things, you know, how they can, you know, create differently. Just just the average listener, you know, trying to um, influence them to uh, be open to something different. Like I said, it's art. I mean, art is subjective or whatever, but... You know, that's that's how I see my value. If I created something that's kind of left field and I still get a lot of people to like it, I, I, I consider that success. You know, and also, I mean, first and foremost, I got to enjoy it, too. But I consider it success where I, I kind of stepped out of the box. You know, I did something. I didn't follow a trend. You know, I got my inspiration from wherever. And I created something that people like anyway. That's not following a format of a hit or anything. So I that's that's how I consider success. You know, when it comes to uh, putting out my own music. 
this was a pleasure, man. And like, you know, I consider you a friend, but like, I didn't know much about you up until <laughs> now. So I'm glad that I took the time and, uh, you know, Hey, it's black history month. It's Chinese right, new right. year today. Hell it's, it's, it's freaking Trayvon Martin's birthday today. It's a yeah. weird day today. And I'm launching my podcast <laughs> and, um, all, all of those ingredients uh, culminates to me learning more about you. I hope you come on again. It's just a pleasure knowing you, man. Thanks so hey, much man, for your I time. I appreciate you again for inviting me to the show, man. Like, uh, yeah, we're going to talk some more. I, I think, uh, yeah, we, we scratched the surface. I really can go more in depth with a lot of what we spoke about probably at another time. But yeah, man. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs>